Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Abel of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, January 31st, we are studying 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16-31. to 31. In today's text, St. Paul boasts to the Corinthians of the sufferings he has endured as a true apostle of Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Mark Squire. Pastor Squire serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning. Great to be with you. As we get started today, give us some context. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul's been saying leading up to our section of chapter 11? Yeah, naturally labeled 2 Corinthians, uh, most widely seen as uh, a letter written after 1 Corinthians, although there is this uh, small minority opinion which said that 2 Corinthians was written first, which I don't think mm. is convincing at all <laughs> with all the evidence. But uh, this is one of his longer ones. It's the third longest letter we have in the New Testament after Romans and 1 Corinthians. Um, and like with many of his epistles, these letters are written not just to give information, but to encourage and to comfort, but also to rebuke and admonish. Uh, and especially with the Corinthians, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, the congregation at Corinth had any number of problems, uh, which, you know, we could say the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Yeah. You know, Christians have had problems since the very beginning because we're still sinners and Jesus has not returned yet. Uh, but for them specifically, their problems uh, were were based mostly around this idea of division. Mm. And we saw that mostly in 1 Corinthians, uh, and this division showed up in, in many ways, um, not just around the Lord's Supper, but uh, with some of the immorality that was going on, some of the questions about uh, food and, and what they could eat and what they could do. Uh, so in the second letter then, and I think it's safe to say Paul wrote more than two letters, but we have these two extant. Uh, so uh, in the second letter, Paul has has visited, he's established the congregation and he's already made one more visit, which in chapter two, verse one, he calls his painful visit. And I think this is probably the, this is where the rubber hits the road kind of visit. He had written his letter and uh, addressed all of the issues and now it was coming to a head and they had to really deal with what was going on. Mm. But in the second letter, it's a little it's a little choppier than the first letter. Uh, and I think what Paul's doing here in following up, he's he's sort of hitting the highlights. Uh, but also he's emphasizing a lot, and we're gonna see this today, his suffering and affliction as an apostle and and how that um, how should I say this? How this how this gives credence to his call in Christ but also how it affects the proclamation of the word of God and the life of Christians everywhere and, and certainly the Christians at Corinth. Yeah, it's, it's certainly striking, especially as we get into this section of chapter 11, how much he, he will list concerning his sufferings. And when you think about that which he would boast about, that doesn't seem like what would make the top of the list, and yet it's going to dominate this chapter and into the next as well. He'll, he'll expound upon that further. So that's that's the... That ends up being the mark of his apostleship, as opposed to the 
the so-called super apostles or false apostles, as he's clearly labeled them previously, who who make a different boast. And we had a guest mention this, I think, yesterday, and he, he talked about that there's a, a bit of a, a contrast here then between what's sometimes called the theology of the cross and the theology of glory and the way that Paul boasts of his his sufferings. I know I'm kind of throwing that at, at you, not the guest that brought it up, but I'm curious <laughs> if you have anything to to add to that or if you see that as well. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. You know, in Lutheran theology, we do have this distinction between theology of the cross and the theology of glory, where, you know, the world, as it were, operates in a theology of glory, which focuses on success and things being, you know, to really, really distill this down into a simple idea, you know, things being good. So um, we, we want things to be successful. We want things to be good. We want things to turn out well. And that's the mark of something genuine or something that's working. Whereas in Christianity, when we see the life of the church as it reflects the life of Christ, you know, Jesus did everything right. He was without sin. And yet, where did he end up? He ended up at the cross. So we call this the theology of the cross because what God is doing in Christ and then by extension in his church is he's bringing good out of these situations that the world will look at and say, that's terrible, that's awful, that's a failure. And what Paul's doing in the, with this theology of glory here is saying that this is actually the mark of Christ. This is the mark of the church. This is the mark of my apostleship, my being called by Jesus himself, is that I'm being afflicted and in danger just like my Lord Jesus Christ was. Yeah. So with that in mind, where does this text show up liturgically? I think this is one that actually does show up in one of the lectionaries. It does. So in the, the one-year lectionary, this shows up um, every year. Well, naturally, it shows up. Uh, and um, it's right before uh, the Lenten season. And then um, in the three-year, I think it shows up in the long season of... Pentecost, so later on in the year, in uh, Series B. So this year, if uh, your listeners are are at churches where, which follow the three-year series, then they're going to hear this text later on this year. Um, so this is, I mean, this is an important text because what Paul's doing here is is giving credence and and laying the foundation again for what is what is the basis for the proclamation of the gospel? Is it that things are going to look successful in numbers or money or whatever, or is this going to be faithfulness, which will naturally bring along with it danger and affliction? Mm-hmm. Right. So before we dig a little more carefully into this particular section of the epistle, give us a little bit more big picture stuff in terms of the, the context of Corinth and some of the big themes in this epistle. Yeah, Corinth is an interesting place because it sits on this isthmus on the Peloponnese Peninsula, uh, which connects the uh, the peninsula with the rest of Greece, and so it was it was an important area for trading and uh, military strategy, those sorts of things. Uh, the Romans had actually raised Corinth uh, well before Christ was born, and the Romans, a hundred years after they raised it, founded it again in 44 BC, and it quickly grew to become a rather cosmopolitan city and, and very large, especially in the ancient world, about 100,000 people. So it was, a, it was a melting pot, which when we see, especially in 1 Corinthians, some of these issues that are coming up, it, it would be natural for us to assume that these things were going to happen because you have people from all different backgrounds and cultures and belief systems. And so some of this division that arises is based somewhat in that. 
If your listeners are reading through the book of Acts, they can see when Paul first comes to Corinth and how he's, uh, he actually stays there 18 months uh, his first time around, and he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and he's trying to, to reason with the Jews in the synagogue, and this is one of those places where the Jews, some of them listened, of course, others rejected him, so Paul shakes the dust off his feet and says, fine, I'm going to the Gentiles. So we start to see this shift away from some of the Jewish congregations towards either mixed congregations or purely Gentile congregations. Uh, but here in Corinth, and specifically with this letter, uh, we, this text is in the last half or the last part of the letter where we see Paul shift in tone towards um, what one scholar called this sort of call to simplicity. And we see what a Christian life looks like in certain ways. So we see Paul in chapters 8 and 9 talking about the generosity of the saints. Um, And then as we see here today, there's this section about affliction and danger. And yet, as we saw all the way back in chapter 1, Paul reassures the Corinthians that there is comfort to be found in affliction. So give us a little more immediate context then within this larger section that has been labeled the call to simplicity. What have we been looking at? What is Paul continuing from in the the previous chapter or so? Yeah, Paul's been warning against these false teachers, these so-called super apostles that you brought up earlier, these false apostles. These claimed authority and supremacy, they likely came from Jerusalem. And so whether it was the source you know, being in Jerusalem, whether it was that they were people of Israel, whether it was because they were eloquent or trained in uh, rhetoric or that they had this powerful message or this string of success, whatever it was, uh, they were basing their message on these type of worldly things. And Paul calls them in verse 13, right before our text, false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ and he says that they're connected to Satan who disguises himself as righteousness or as an angel of light, excuse me. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. So on the one hand, he's, he's warning against and preaching against these false apostles, which, you know, the flip side of the coin then is for him to have to say, well, if they're false, who's the true one? And and he's, he's bringing it back to himself, not to put the spotlight on himself, but to, as we're going to see, boast in his weakness, which right after this text, we see that Paul has prayed, for example, that this thorn might be taken from his side. And yet uh, God responds that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So all this really does tie together with this idea of the theology of the cross, God working in weakness, uh, certainly in its most uh, climactic way in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So let's take a look at what Paul says here in our section of chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, 
I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. That is our text for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 to 31. You're just reading through that, that long list of Paul's sufferings there, Pastor Squire, and, and thinking about the immediate context in the previous couple of verses about Satan disguising himself as an angel of light and his servants disguising themselves or clothing themselves as servants of righteousness. Just the the complete difference in the outward appearance of the, the two sides strikes me. You know, on the one hand, you've got Satan and his servants just trying to, to dress themselves up to make them look good. And, and on the other hand, you've got the Lord and his servants who don't really care if, if they look good and actually dress themselves up in these sufferings. I suppose, going back to, to chapter 4 of this epistle, so that you would recognize the treasure uh, and not, the, not so much the jar of clay. Right, and this is a theme that is threaded throughout the entire scriptures. We see it right away in Genesis 3 with the temptation of Adam and Eve, where when Eve listens to the serpent and she looks at the fruit, she sees that it's good for for food, right? She sees that it looks good. And I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't look over that too quickly because there is this sense of desire that comes from that which is reflected in Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness. When, when Satan tempts Jesus, when he shows him the kingdoms of the world, it's in all their glory, right? So we see this reflected in practical ways too. So in Paul's other letters, you know, we'll see him write, for example, how Christian women shouldn't adorn themselves with gold and jewels, you know, to, to make themselves look good, but really on the inside, they're, they're not, Right? Not that jewelry is bad you know, in, in sure. it of itself or something, but that if you're adorning yourself with beauty on the outside and yet living a non-Christian or an unchristian life, uh, you're, you're being a hypocrite. So Jesus, for example, will call out the Pharisees and say that they're whitewashed tombs because they, <laughs> they look good on the outside, uh, but on the inside they're full of, of bones and, and dead people. Which I think if we look at the end times too, we actually maybe see a reflection of this in... Uh, those who wear the robes that John says that they've been dipped and washed in the blood of Christ, which sounds like a disgusting image. And yet 
I think, hmm. of course, it, it, it references our forgiveness and our being washed clean, but I think there's something to be said about being covered, you know, to use your language, Pastor Apple, covered in these afflictions hmm. uh, so that we can see what the true treasure is, which is Christ's righteousness, which is the glory which is to come. I like, I like that connection to Revelation chapter 7. That image has always struck me that it is after being washed in the blood of the Lamb that they're made white. And yet, if you you know, and that's I suppose what the eyes of faith see and, and see so clearly, and and that's a wonderful image that you see in Christian art. But to the eyes of the world, to be to be washed in this blood is a is a disgusting thing. And even to uh, to use go back to this same epistle in Second Corinthians chapter two, where he uses the the language of the aroma instead of clothing. Uh, the aroma of of Christ is is the smell of death to those who are perishing. Uh, but to us who are, are being saved, it's the aroma of life, from life to life. And so similarly then with the, the afflictions, for Paul, this becomes the source of his boasting. This is him going from life to life or from suffering to life ultimately, whereas to the world, this looks like weakness, nothing uh, that to be despised and, and disgusted by. Yeah, and and we have to be careful because it would be easy for the world to claim that we're you know, masochists or something, that we enjoy sure. suffering, that we're boasting, and oh, the, the worse it is, you know, the better we are, or something like that. And that's not what Paul is doing here. And and so we do have to, we have to be careful with this, but but everything you said is absolutely true that um, the boasting, and as we're, we'll talk about the boasting, but the boasting is not in what looks good, or what, what the world likes, or what is glorious right now, but but the eyes of faith look to something that is actually an eternally glorious and good, which is hidden in suffering, to go back to this idea of the theology of the cross. Yeah, I'm glad you said what, what you did about masochism, and that's not what we're talking about. Because I've, I've had faithful Christians ask me before, well, Pastor, I don't really see that I'm suffering all that much, certainly not like St. Paul. And even as I'm reading the list, like, I've never gone through that, and I don't know that I ever will— so the question is sometimes, well, is there something wrong with me? Am I being unfaithful because I'm not suffering like this? And, and my answer is, is usually, well, you know, that's, that's a good question to ask yourself. It's always good for us to reflect upon our lives and to repent as needed for where we're maybe being faithful, uh, faithful or not being faithful. Uh, but on the other hand, suffering is not the, the ultimate measure of that. Uh, the, the ultimate measure is, am I following what God's Word says? So that if the Lord gives a cross, then so be it, thanks be to God. And if the Lord doesn't give a cross, then also so be it, thanks be to God. Yeah, and that I think that would go, for example, to the confession of Job, right? The Lord gives, the Lord yeah. takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Or, you know, to, to bring in Paul, this is, I think, Philippians 4, right? That Paul learns yeah. to be content in any and every situation. So whether he has plenty or he's in need, whether he's safe or in danger, uh, you know, and so yeah, the, pastorally, this this is something we need to ask ourselves: Am I not suffering because I'm avoiding the truth, or is this just a time where God has given me rest from these right. things, and I can rejoice that that I have peace? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well said. Well said. So let's go ahead and turn a little more closely to the the text in detail. So he he starts in verse sixteen. Uh, with this thought of, of foolishness, which is the way the chapter started. Yesterday, we, we looked at the beginning of the chapter, and he says, I wish you would bear with me in, in a little foolishness. Here he comes back to this thought of being a fool, and I don't want people to think that I'm foolish, but even if you do accept me as such, take us into this foolishness language. 
Yeah, I think when we hear this word foolishness in English, we think he may be talking like he's stupid or ignorant or something like that. Uh, but this word really denotes more of a an insanity or an absurdity, something that just doesn't make sense. And I think it, it would be it would be better for us to imagine somebody who's almost like screaming on the street corner or something like it's just this insanity, this absurdity, something that that's just out of the ordinary. So what Paul's saying here is not that he's an idiot or that he's stupid or dumb or something, um, but that what he's preaching and by extension how his life looks doesn't make sense to the world. He is, in other words, out of his mind, which is something he said earlier in the letter already. So if you look back at chapter 5, Verse 13, Paul says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. And so there's already this idea of being out of his mind. And certainly there's a rhetorical component to this. But I think in his comparing himself and the other apostles to these false apostles, these so-called super apostles, what he's doing is saying that you ought to be paying attention to what I'm saying and not how I present myself, not not what the world would give to me, but the word of Christ, which, again, isn't going to make sense to the world, and yet in it we find life. Yeah, it, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, this this thought of foolishness, that on the one hand you have the, the positive aspect from 1 Corinthians, the first couple chapters, that the gospel looks like foolishness to the world, but for us who are being saved it is the wisdom of God. And on the other hand, you also, I, I think, and, and I think this maybe dominates this section a little bit more, Paul calling himself a, a fool in the sense that he's going to boast about himself for a while, which is really what he'd rather not do, and he doesn't, he doesn't really <laughs> yeah. want to play that game, but he's going to because he's, he's kind of been put into that situation. And so he said, just kind of bear with this sort of foolishness for a while. But also, I, I think, right. you know, as you're saying, bear with what I am actually saying, bear with the true preaching of the gospel. Yeah. And as we're going to see, uh, and as you've already read, uh, Paul does kind of boast foolishly. He boasts in the same way as the super apostles are boasting. And yet, like he says elsewhere in his letters, you know, he counts all of it as loss. I mean, none of it matters. It doesn't matter that he's a Hebrew circumcised on the eighth day, you know, according to the law of Pharisee, etc. It matters that he's in Christ and the afflictions that connect him with Christ and the word of truth that connect him with Christ are what are what are bringing him through to the resurrection of the the body and the life everlasting. So he starts to clarify a little bit more about what he's going to be doing in this boasting, starting in verse seventeen. Take us into that verse. Yeah, he says, uh, "I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool." Which you know, there there starts to be some irony here, right? Um, he's he's talking out of his mind in almost in two different ways. He he wants to say, okay, you want to play this game? Well, let's play this game. Um, but he's going to flip it around on them, right? So uh, he's he's quoting essentially uh, here Jeremiah nine, which you know in uh, chapter ten verse seventeen he says, "Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord," which comes from Jeremiah chapter nine. So this is all tied together. And I just want to read those two verses because I think they're really helpful for us in understanding what this boasting means. So Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, uh, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So this, of course, is a reflection of the Lord Jesus himself, right? Who Paul says this in Philippians 2, that Jesus considered himself nothing. He emptied himself, became a servant, and allowed himself to go to the cross. He despised the glory of this world. So Paul has lots of reasons to boast in the eyes of the world. You know, when he was a Pharisee, he, uh, he was at the top of his game. And yet he has thrown it all away. And I'm sure everyone in the world can look and say, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense, right? So he's, he's boasting as a fool that he's thrown away what the world has given to him. And yet his confidence is not in the flesh, but it's in the Lord. And it's in the lowliness and the humility and the suffering that comes with being connected with Christ. Mm, yeah, just look, I, I turn to that Jeremiah passage that you brought out, and if you keep reading from there, the Lord through Jeremiah speaks about punishing those who are, are circumcised only in flesh, but not circumcised in the sure. heart. And that I think that fits really well in this context, too, with what we were talking about earlier with these super apostles who outwardly seem to be pretty impressive, but inwardly are preaching nothing but falsehood. And on the other hand, you've got Paul, who outwardly doesn't look that impressive, but inwardly is right. is truly circumcised in the heart, to use that language from Jeremiah. Yeah, it fits in here, and it fits in with a lot of what Paul writes. I mean, you think of Galatians, for example, where Paul's speaking very clearly and persistently about circumcision and the sort of outward signs as opposed to the circumcision of the heart. You know, circumcision, not circumcision, none of it counts for anything, but only being a new creation in, you know, in Christ. Yeah, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Mark Squire this morning about 2 Corinthians 11. We will be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, January 31st. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 to 31 with Pastor Mark Squire. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, prior to the break, we were talking about this irony that, that Paul brings out as he begins to play the game that the super apostles are playing. In verse 18, he says, "...since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast." Then he speaks to the, the Corinthians more directly in verses 19 and 20. You gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, 
for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you, and, and etc. What is he? What's he getting at as he begins to address the Corinthians there? Yeah, he's speaking rather ironically, and I think pointedly. To you know, it's the Corinthians are conforming themselves to this theology of glory, this worldly sense of success, and you know, things look good. And yet, what Paul's saying is when they do that, they're actually making themselves slaves of these people, and by extension, slaves again of Satan. So they're wise. I mean, the, the world could look at them and say, oh, you make you know smart decisions. You're, things are looking good. And yet, what happens when these so-called super apostles, the false apostles, come and speak in this way and preach in this way and, and lead them in this way? Well, they make slaves of them, they devour them, they take advantage of them, they put on errors and they strike them in the face. And to put the cherry on top, you guys are fine with it. <laughs> mm. uh, so there's this irony there that, yeah, you can go on boasting and yet look at what's actually happening to you and you're ignoring it. And, and even worse, perhaps you're rejoicing in it. You're allowing it to happen and you're, you're reveling in it, almost like a, a pig rolling around in the mud or something. Well, and so that that stands then in direct contrast with the way St. Paul has conducted his ministry among the Corinthians, which he did bring up earlier in this chapter, and you could go back into 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he talks about the way that he, he, was, he did not make use of the right that he had to receive compensation from the Corinthians for preaching the gospel, yeah. a complete contrast there between Paul and these so-called super-apostles. Yeah, and we see this reflected by Luke in Acts chapter 18, where Paul comes to Corinth, and he does meet, again, Priscilla and Aquila, and Luke mentions that they are tent makers by trade. And so there's this inference that we can draw that um, uh, that Paul isn't taking anything from the Corinthians at all. He doesn't have a salary, he doesn't have a wage, because he wants to show them that he's not there to make money off of them, to take advantage of them. Now, now, and again, to think, look at this pastorally, of course, you know, Paul says elsewhere, and God says elsewhere in his word that the worker deserves his wages. And Paul is upfront about this, that he would deserve to be paid. And yet the point that Paul's trying to make here is that he is putting nothing in their way. He wants there to be no wall or barrier to them hearing and believing the gospel. Um, so for him, yeah, this is this is a complete contrast. It's a night and day difference between him and these super apostles who probably have come looking great and preaching eloquently and then probably handing the plate around like, okay, here's our you know, give us give us what is due to us, right? So that they can continue on taking advantage of the Corinthians and, and other Christians. Yeah, we you know, this this thought of the Corinthians in verse 20 bearing with all of these things that the the false apostles are doing, whereas apparently not bearing with Paul's weaknesses, his you know, shortcomings that whatever they they might be, although it really is hard for me to imagine his his shortcomings. I guess he must not have been, you know. I, <laughs> but but regardless, this this thought of bearing with the thing that they're not bear they shouldn't, but then refusing to bear that which they should. And we talked a little bit about yeah. that yesterday, and I guess just thinking about that, how does that? How do we as, as Christians put that into practice today? What are those things in, in our pastors that we, we should bear? Uh, what are things that, that we, we should not be willing to bear when it comes to those who would who present the gospel to us? 
Yeah, there. If if you ever take a peek at a pastor's call documents, you know get, it lists very clearly what the job of the pastor is. But by extension, then of course, what what the role of the congregation is. So a congregation should never bear with a pastor who is preaching falsely from the Word of God, mingling long gospel, preaching their own doctrine instead of the doctrine of God, etc. Uh, if, if a pastor has been caught up in a, a scandalous life, you know, things like this, or is not doing his duties, you know, consistently, persistently not doing what he's been called to do. These are things that need to be addressed by the congregation, circuit visitors, district presidents, these sorts of things, right? But as far as the human shortcomings, whether it's something that has to do with personality, whether it's something that has to do with eloquence, whether it's something that has to do with a certain amount of training or ability, these things that, and, you know, I, I'm with you, Pastor Apple, it's hard to look back and say, what, what shortcomings would Paul have had? And yet he was human like us. And, and whatever it was, whether he, you know, there's times where he preached too long, right? Where the, right, yeah. the, the servant falls asleep and falls out the window and Paul has to go raise him from the dead. Um, but uh, yeah, so these, these types of shortcomings that all of us as humans deal with, this is part of what it looks like to walk together as Christians. And in some ways, it's probably harder to deal with when it comes in relation to a pastor, because the pastor is supposed to be leading people, guiding people. But uh, we can't forget that the church, to get back to this theology of glory, not only rejoices together, but suffers together, is afflicted together. And sometimes this happens even just within the congregation. So if a pastor is having trouble with something instead of, you know, congregation, uh, running him out or or speaking about him in the dark corners of the community or complaining and whining, you know, either bearing it or, uh, you know, lovingly talking to the pastor or, you know, whatever needs to happen that, that people can walk together in forgiveness and in love because if Christ's word is being preached and proclaimed, this is the main thing, Right. What does it look like? It's not always going to look pretty. It's not always going to look wonderful. It's not always going to feel great. Uh, but this is what leads to life. Mm, yeah, and I guess, you know, when a congregation then, like the Corinthians, starts bearing with the wrong things, then then these things that Paul lists there in verse 20 eventually start to make themselves a little more manifest. As much as the as much as the devil and his servants would disguise themselves as angels of light or servants of righteousness, their their true nature eventually shines through. And, and as you said, we, we should be careful here, because the Scriptures very clearly do teach us that the, the worker is worth his, his hire, as Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so that you know how much we pay a pastor or how much we pay church workers isn't ultimately the point of, of what he's saying there about you know taking advantage or devouring you. But when right. those false teachers begin to make inroads within a congregation, eventually this this taking advantage of those kinds of negative consequences, I think, start to show themselves who have the to those who have the eyes to see it. They do, and that happens with pastors on that side of the coin. That pastors, because they have responsibility and authority can start to easily take advantage of their hearers in one way or another, whether that's financially or whether that's emotionally or whatever. I mean, there's a hundred different ways this could happen. But this happens too on, on the side of uh, 
the members of the congregation, which is to say, here, for example, I think what we can extrapolate from this, at least one thing from this, is that it's easy to have this sort of false sense of peace and security, mm-hmm. which comes from ignoring the true word of God. Mm-hmm. So when we think of all the varied and uh the multitude of sins that the culture revels in and rejoices in and celebrates and and at least allows, this can start happening in the church where people don't want to say, hey, this, this isn't actually what God said. But if you have a pastor who's saying, for example, I'm just going to ignore this, not address it, and people go along with that, Jesus says a little yeast leavens the whole loaf, right? So this, it starts to multiply and infect and eventually everything's going to hit the fan and there's going to be some some real bad stuff that, that people are going to have to go mm-hmm. through. So as Paul then in the middle of verse 21, he begins to turn a corner and he, he goes into this boasting. So whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. So take us into that that introduction and then we'll kind of start to work our way through this long list of of achievements that Paul lists. Yeah, Paul continues to have this sort of sharpness of irony here that uh, these super apostles are willing to take advantage of them. But Paul says, I was too weak for that, right? Um, he's he's too weak because he's he's maybe allowed these things to happen or, or whatever. These false teachers have come. Um, but yeah, there's this, again, he's playing this game. If you want to boast, if you want to live in this sort of worldly boasting, well, guess what? I could boast too. And yet what this introduction does is set this up for Paul turning it around to them. He's not here going to boast like he would in an, uh, and I'm trying to remember which, which other letter it is, but where he actually lists off what I had said earlier about being a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee. I'm, I'm pretty and, sure that's in Philippians that. he, 3. Sure. Yep, yep. Philippians. Thank you. Yeah. So he's not actually going to list that this time. He says, well, you know, I was too weak for that, so let me boast. And what we're going to see here is that he actually boasts in his sufferings and in the afflictions and dangers that come. Sure. Now, as as he starts in this this section, it, it starts to it begins in a way that sounds similar to what you were describing there in Philippians. He asks a couple of, of rhetorical questions. Uh, take us into those questions mm-hmm. first. Yeah, this is sort of like he's baiting them. It sounds like he's going to go into this list again. Are, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Right? Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Um, so there's this, 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 almost this false start here, like, oh, we're going to boast then here. I'm a Hebrew, you know, I speak the language that God had given the law and I'm, I'm of the people of God, the covenant people of God descended from Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. I'm a part of the people that have the promises, right? So what boasting can they do that I can't do? And yet again, he, he stopped short here. He doesn't keep going. Uh, but, but this, it, it, it's a wonderful way rhetorically to, to draw people in, and then when you turn it on them, it has an even more powerful effect that he's not going to talk about his learning from Gamaliel. He's not going to talk about this or that. It's, it's going to be about something different. So the, those first questions, you know, are they Hebrews, Israelites? Uh, like, those are, are offspring of Abraham. As, when I hear those, I hear synonyms. Is there... Is there anything to—is it just a rhetorical device, do you think, that he's using by repeating it in that way, or is there a significance to those three terms, one over another? I don't, I don't know. I'm just—they sound like yeah. synonyms to they're, me. 
Yeah, I think I think personally, I would draw this up to sort of a, a Hebrew parallelism type of thing. This repetition. I think some some scholars have tried to discern some sort of distinctions here. You know, does Hebrew reference language and sort of worship and religious stuff in the synagogue? And Israelite talk about this ethnicity, and then people of Abraham kind of. Reference the covenant. I mean, really, in the end, all of these things are tied together. So I don't know that I would try to make too clear a distinction. But I think what Paul's doing is sort of giving this the, the fullness of what does it mean to be part of, as it were, the Old Testament people of God. You know, whether it's language, culture, ancestry, all of these things being tied together. Now, of course, in in other letters, Paul's going to say, well, true Israel is not descended from Abraham according to the flesh. But hey, if we want to boast in the flesh. I'm all of these things. Sure. Yeah. And does do you think that gives us a little bit of an insight into what these super apostles might have been? I mean, like, are these things that they likely would have boasted about would have been their ancestry? I think so. I think you're right to infer that because we see from Paul's other letters, too, that some of these so-called apostles that come from Jerusalem or wherever, I guess, seem to be boasting in the old covenant, whether that's with circumcision, you know, you have to be circumcised to become uh, a Christian, or whether that's just, even if they're not preaching circumcision or something else, I think certainly that, well, hey, I've, I'm part of the people of God, and I, I know the scripture, so you, you ought to listen to me, right? Almost like if, if someone were to boast, and I went to this or that school, or I'm from this or that church, and oh, wow, wow, you know, you guys, you guys do it right. And so I'm going to listen to you no matter what you say. And I, so I think, I think that must be, since he's referencing this here in order, again, to turn it around on them, this, this must be the foundation of what, what they've laid for the Corinthians. And now he does start, I think, to turn it around with the, the fourth question, are they servants of Christ? And he answers, I am a better one. <laughs> and then you, you start to get into the list. So take us into that, that question and how he starts to turn that corner. Yeah, I <laughs> I am a better one. Again, this 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 sounds almost out of place, right, for yeah. for an apostle to say, and yet he adds, I'm talking like a madman. And with far greater labors, imprisonments, and then you start to think, wait, where is this going? Um but I think what one thing that Paul likes to point to as an apostle, apostle means to be sent, right? Jesus Christ himself appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And so you can claim the sort of fleshly authority all you want. But what Paul's saying is that everything I'm telling you, and indeed everything that I've endured and everything that I've experienced and lived out is according to the word of Christ. So, you know, we can call each other apostles all we want, but who is serving Christ? And what Paul's point here is going to be is that he is serving Christ based on his afflictions, Whereas these false apostles are not serving Christ despite their claims, which is seen and evidenced in how they're preaching, what they're saying, but certainly in in what their lives are are playing out. You know, thinking about the that Christ Himself appeared to Paul, and and what Paul says here about you know I'm I'm talking like a madman as he begins his boast. I I thought I thought of the words of of Jesus, and I think they're. I know they're recorded in Matthew and Mark both, where he his disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, and he teaches them about what yeah. true greatness is. And so as, as Paul starts this, you know, l- this boasting, playing the game that the super apostles are playing, and he says, I'm talking like a madman, even then, it does seem that he he's trying to line himself up with what the Lord has, has taught. 
that to be great in the kingdom of God is not to you know be the best servant of Christ in in human terms, but to be the servant of all. And so, you know, he he shows then through these sufferings how he's been a, a servant because that's where he's you know throughout this epistle he's talked about all the afflictions that he and and the true apostles have endured. That was for the sake of serving the Corinthians for serving the church. And so, even as he talks like a madman here and right. boasting about so called accomplishments. I think he's trying to do it in line with with what Christ has taught. Yeah, you're you're right. And again, this is not the sort of worldly boasting like look how bad I've had it. But what did Jesus say, you know, oh Corinthians? What did Jesus say about being great? What did he say about following him? Well, he said take up your cross and follow me. He said that you who would be great must become a servant. And so this is why Paul is going to lay out these different afflictions is because he's reinforcing for them not only what Jesus taught, but that Paul has come faithfully as a servant of Christ to live it out for them. So within this list then, and the, well, before I, we look at the list, just one other connection that as I was thinking through this text, the in Hebrews chapter 11, when you get that, what's sometimes called the Hall of Faith, all those those saints of old, at the end of that chapter, when the author is, is writing about, you know, not people specifically, but Christians in general, and he lists the accomplishments mm-hmm. of faith, he starts kind of like Paul does here, I'm a better one. But then as he, he continues that list, that those achievements of faith become things like Paul is listing here. And so you got another example of the way that when faith is active, it, it is active very much in suffering. It's not that it's never—it's certainly active in, in what we would call blessing, too— but it's active in suffering. And the end of Hebrews 11 is an example of that, along with the list that Paul gives us here. So with, with the list that Paul gives us here, Pastor Squire, it's, it's a long one. What, what stands out—we don't have to look at every single thing, but what stands out to you? What should we note, like connections to the book of Acts, things like that? Yeah, I think what stands out to me the most is simply the length of this list. <laughs> this isn't like, oh, well, three years ago, I went through a rough time at the congregation. Uh, this is every stop that he's had, he's faced danger. And and so, and th- this isn't just, you know, I was anxious or something. This is real physical danger, deadly stuff. So not only does he talk about far greater labors, but he mentions imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. And I would say, too, the, the one time where he's stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead, it's entirely possible and likely that he was dead and that when the disciples came, you know, that he was actually raised from the dead. And what does he do? He goes back into the yeah. city and preaches more. So I think what I would encourage your hearers to do is is page through Acts again and look through some of this because it's one thing to see it in a list. It's really powerful to see it all just collected together, Paul recounting all of these things. But certainly all of these things have historical antecedents. So when you're looking at this and you say, oh, this happened to him in Ephesus, this happened to him in Thessalonica, this happened to him in uh, Corinth or whatever, uh, it's, I think it reinforces for us that there are certainly good times that Paul experiences. He was at Corinth for 18 months. Some of it must have been quite good. And yet it seems like every stop that he's had, what the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ has brought him is opposition to the world, which is exactly what Jesus 
predicted, right? If, if they did this to me, you know, how much more are they going to do to all of you? Um, I think one thing that sticks out to me too is this three times I was shipwrecked. Mm. Now we, we know of the one of yeah. course on his way to Rome, but there are apparently these other times where Paul's sailing somewhere. And I mean, so imagine, imagine not just once, but three times or more that, that this has happened at sea. I would just say, I, I give Why up. Why do you keep getting this on the is, boat? Yeah. This is enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, does God want me to actually be doing this, right? Um, so he gives these specific afflictions, imprisonments, beatings that we can see again in Acts. But when he continues then in verse 26, he gets a little more vague and general and yet I think what that does when he draws back is that there's this constant sense of attack by the devil. So it's not just, oh, the people, you know, the Jews at Ephesus that, that rejected me, they're the problem. Or, you know, the Gentiles at this city, they're the problem. You know, Paul is very clear in many of his letters that the, the enemies of the church are not flesh and blood. Right. They're, they're the, the spiritual powers that are in the heavenly places, the, the powers of darkness, the devil himself. Because what else could be behind uh, danger from rivers, robbers, and his own people, Gentiles, in the city, the wilderness, the sea, false brothers? I mean, it's everything and everywhere. There's, there's this sense of there's an entire kingdom, as it were, the kingdom of Satan, which is preventing him, trying to stop him at every turn. And yet, because Paul has been sent by Christ, even though these are extremely difficult and persistent situations, the the cross of Christ shines through and the power of God continues to turn people to him through repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, I, I think the, the the keeping in mind the role of the, the evil one in this, I think is a, a very important thing, especially as he'll continue into chapter 12, where finally all of this then is going to point Paul to find his his strength, as he said earlier in this letter, that his sufficiency in the Lord and his grace alone. Because if, if this is the enemy that's out to get Paul, then, then who can stand? Well, only the one who is in the Lord who finds his sufficiency there. Uh, looking at the, the list as well, the, the other one that, that stands out to me is when he gets then to verse 28, and he, he says, besides all of these physical sufferings, the whole time I've been worried about you guys and, and wondering, are you going to stick true to the, the Word of God? I mean, that's the—which I, like, on top of all of this— like, are these churches going to continue faithfully in God's Word? That also adds the pressure to him. And you can, again, you just feel all of that, that that he's listing there. Yeah, I think, and this is something I think that many people can feel, not just pastors yeah. or missionaries or whatever, that there's this sense, especially when you're helping people, that you can spend hours and hours and hours and days and weeks and months serving them in one way or another. And it can only take... I mean, it only takes a few hours sometimes mm. to feel like all of that's being undone. Yeah. And so there's an anxiety, especially when it comes to something like this, where this is e this, the eternal consequences at stake here. Are you going to stay faithful? I mean, that, that would keep anyone up at night. I mean, how, eight, Paul put 18 months of his life into this congregation. He's visited there more than once now. He's written them letters. And yet there continue to be divisions. They're turning away to false apostles and there's constant threat from the world. 
So there, there's a very real personal pastoral tone to this as well. It's not just that robbers might get me, but I have trouble sleeping sometimes because I worry about yeah. you or I'm concerned about yeah, you. Yeah, you, I, you definitely see the, the pastoral heart of Paul, especially in these latter chapters of, of this epistle. We got about three minutes here, Pastor Squire, and, and we've gone through a number of things in the list. I think that last verse of our section where he brings up what happened in Damascus, although it's not right. in the list, it, it falls in that same category. Uh, but in verses 30 and 31, then, he says this, "'If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying.'" I think that helps to, to summarize what he's been up to and also sets the stage for where we're headed in, in chapter 12 next time. Uh, what, do we need to, what do we need to help us to wrap things up this morning? What do we need to take from those verses from this text as a whole? Yeah, I think right there we see the seriousness of what Paul's saying is that in that he invokes God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is no small thing to bring God into the discussion. I mean, he doesn't say explicitly something like, well, I swear to God or something like that. But just just invoking God in this, I am not lying, you know, as God is my witness, essentially, that that these things are from are from him, which is to say, he sent me, and no matter what comes, I'm gonna continue to to preach the truth. Right. So I think um again, to bring this back to Jesus, uh, everything that Paul is experiencing, everything that he's saying can be reflected in the life and ministry of Jesus. And this is all Paul wants to do is he wants to follow his Lord. So I mentioned Philippians 2 earlier, a great place to, to connect here. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 9 that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And from then on, you know, of course, he's arrested, struck, beaten, flogged, mocked, nailed to the cross. But it's in his glorious resurrection that we find vindication for this, that you mentioned earlier this idea of the eyes of faith, and that's what faith does. It looks forward to something that's coming. What Jesus' resurrection does, among the many, many other things, is give us the sure hope of what is to come, because it's already begun in Jesus. So what Paul's doing here in 2 Corinthians is a continuation of what Jesus did, what Paul's already said in, for example, 1 Corinthians 2, that he wants to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. Why? Because Jesus isn't still dead. He's alive, right? So as, as far as our lives as Christians, you know, we too, like Paul, are connected with Christ. We, we don't have the same vocation. We're not apostles. We're not missionaries necessarily. You know, some of the people who are listening might be those things, and that's wonderful. But we all have these same afflictions and temptations, which come, you know, of course, in different ways. But the devil's still out to get the church. And he does this most powerfully in the subtle ways. What can I boast in? What looks good? What is successful according to the world? What can be that sort of false peace that is really no peace at all? On the other hand, what does Jesus actually call us to? He calls us to boast in our weakness, which is to say, be being honest about who we are as poor, miserable sinners, but rejoicing in that Jesus has taken us and he's crucified us with him in baptism into death so that he might raise us already to new life so that we can continue to boast in Christ, whether we're content with plenty and with peace now, whether we're suffering, whether we're in affliction, Uh, Regardless, all we're going to do is look to Christ, and that's what people should seek from their pastors. That's what people should be looking for in the scriptures. 
that's what pastors should be preaching is is the cross and the resurrection because as Paul says in the next chapter it's when we are weak then we are strong because Christ is our strength and our salvation Pastor Mark Squire is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. He's been helping us today to study 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 to 31. Pastor Squire, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 2 Corinthians 11, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.